I'm Camille Valvo, and you're listening to the March edition of Voices of Experience, brought to you by the National Speakers Association. March can be a time of change, whether it's the first signs of spring or, in some countries, the first signs of autumn. If it's change in our business, effective strategies will help us move forward productively. So kicking off this month with Strategies on Strategy is Dr. Joe Somerville on The Real Deal. I'm joined on this edition by Robert Bradford, CSP, who's also the CEO of the Center for Simplified Strategic Planning. Welcome, Robert. Oh, thanks. Robert, what's the real deal between someone speaking on a topic that he or she gets paid for and speaking on a topic he or she is just passionate about? Well, Joe, ideally, if someone is really passionate about something you're going to get paid for, that goes over really, really well and you don't have any issues. But there are a lot of people in NSA, I think, who are conflicted about this idea that, you know what, people want to pay me for this. And a, a classic one is these days, a lot of our customers, a lot of our clients want to pay us for high content stuff. But a lot of us in our hearts, we really want to do motivation. We really want to do empowerment. We really want to change the world. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who want to pay for that. So how would you suggest that uh, they reconcile that conflict? Well, the conflict, I think, is a little bit artificial that, you know, if you're getting paid, you can do whatever you want when you're getting paid. You know, I've, I've met people who have been real change agents, who've done some really great things in some industries, and they're speaking about how to make better plumbing parts or something like that. So it's simply a question of what is the vehicle? What is the thing that the customer or the client thinks that they're buying from us when we're selling? And what are we actually going to deliver? If you view the passion that you bring to the table as icing on the cake, that the thing they're paying for is the thing that makes them buy, and then the thing you're passionate about is going to be the thing that makes them come back. I think that's a pretty good mindset. Let's try to look at some specific examples of that. So let's kind of explore for a minute some of the things that people pay for. Okay. Topics. And so what are people buying when they buy a speech? I think right now I see a lot of people wanting to buy things, uh, as I said, hard topics. If you speak about technology, you're going to do well. Uh, these days I notice a lot of people are asking, hey, can you speak about uh, intergenerational issues? How to manage someone in Generation X or Generation Y? That's not quite as hard, but it's, it's a tough topic for a lot of us to speak about. Yet, if you want to speak about something that is a little more ephemeral, that you have a lot of passion about, like you know, just some core message about how you interact with employees, for example, or how people should treat each other, how people should communicate, you can build that into those topics pretty well. And isn't there a danger also, if we try to look out there and see what's selling well, mm-hmm. then we might end up trying to speak outside our area of expertise. It's absolutely critical, and this is one of the things I think speakers do really badly, is to have a thing that you're always coming back to, that you practice and you do over and over again. I mean, my thing, strategic planning, I've done like 1,200 strategic planning meetings, so doing that over and over again is really great. Kirsten Carey's done a lot of stuff with creative people, for example. She'd done that over and over again. So if within the realm of what they might ask her to do, if they say, hey, I want to do a succession planning, but I'm in a creative business, she's going to be pretty good at that, even if she's never done succession planning before. And someone who's done succession playing over and over again in lots of different industries will have just as much weight that they can carry with it. And so we really have to be careful coming back to this idea. We shouldn't be chasing the topic so much but really learning how to put passion into the expertise that we have and that we're trying to build. 
Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. There are people who can chase topics. If they're very good at one thing and they can apply that thing to a number of different topics, but you have to ask yourself, really, what does the client actually think they're paying for when they buy and what is the thing I'm going to deliver that makes them call back? Mm -hmm. Now, let's think about the progression of your own career mm -hmm. in the speaking industry. Was there a, a time or a switch or something that went on or you just saw your career accelerate? Well, I would say certainly my career accelerated a lot uh, when I published my first book because it was a very popular business book and I get a lot of people who just call me, which is great because I'm terrible at selling. I figured in business models of speakers, there are two types of successful speakers. There are speakers who are successful because they get people to call them by doing something by, like writing a book or having a great website. And then there are people who are successful because they are great at making phone calls. They're really great salespeople. Mm -hmm. And occasionally you'll see a phenomenally successful speaker who has both. I, because I'm not good at sales, you know, having that one thing that started to get people calling me was really, really important. Before that, most of what I ever did was just publicly produce seminars that I was producing myself. So I was creating my own audience and I was rarely hired by a meeting planner before that. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the topics for your public seminars? It's always strategic planning. I've, I've done that same thing over and over again. So when someone calls me up and says, hey, can you speak about this? I say, as long as I can talk about strategic planning while I'm talking about that, I'm great. And if I can't, I know speakers and I'm, I'm going to refer uh, you know, to some other speaker because I don't want to be doing something that I'm not really great at in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. And that also goes into the whole spirit of NSA in terms of sharing and making the pie larger in that whole idea of referring business when it's outside your area of expertise. Yeah, that's one of the things I've been encouraging people to think about when I've been doing chapter programs mm -hmm. is the more we as speakers can get focused on understanding what we're good at and know that there are clients when they call up they're right for us and there are some that are wrong, we can then take those clients and we can build a lot of value with those clients by saying, you know what? here's where you're going to trust me more because I'm going to tell you I'm not the right speaker for you, mm -hmm. but I know somebody who really does well at the thing that you're talking about. I know somebody who does sales training, for example, which I don't do. And I want to refer you to that person. You'll be happier. I'll be happier. And the person I know will be happier. So everybody wins in that situation. It's much better than saying you can do it, trying to squish yourself through that round hole when you're a square peg, and then really stinking badly in front of the audience. So it also becomes very important to become familiar with what your fellow speakers are good at or what their area of expertise is and how do you do that? Well I'll tell you one of the things that I've been doing it when I come to NSA conventions I say to my friends that I really like I say I like you I think you're smart I really want to see you speak let's figure out a way to do that and if that means next time you have a gig that you just go to the meeting planner and say hey listen I got this friend who will come along for free I'll do that. I try and set up gigs where I am working with friends. I might do public seminars with programs because I produce public seminars. Or I have one client this fall that I'm speaking at that actually said, we're looking for some more speakers. Do you know anyone? I said, I'm going to drag in people that I want to see in front of an audience because then I can feel really confident referring them to someone else. Great. Thank you very much, Robert, for joining us. All right. Thank you, Joe. It was a real pleasure. My research shows this month alone there are international gatherings of our speaking community in France, the Netherlands, Australia, and next month in South Africa. I finally tracked down the man at the helm of the International Federation for Professional Speakers, Certified Speaking Professional and CPAE, W. Mitchell. Welcome, Mitchell. Thanks for joining me on VOE. It is a pleasure, Camille. Always a treat to 
be uh, on this wonderful service that you are running and doing a great job with this year, VOE. Thank you very much. Tell me, as the Federation president, what's cooking in the countries you've visited? Well, it's interesting out there. I, I have been this year to four or five countries around the world and have a whole slew to do in the next uh, four or five months. And it's interesting to see the business. In Salzburg, Austria, where the German Speakers Association met in September, they never had a bigger meeting. In fact, most associations around the world would dream about having 300 people show up at their meeting. And they're doing really well. Now, there's a bit of an economic downturn that everybody talks about and hears about, I think talks about too much, and maybe hears about too much around the world. And in September, it was probably less pronounced, the end of August, beginning of September. But these people were all doing really well. I've got the sense that business is booming for a lot of people. And as I I talk to people in other spots around the world, either going and visiting them in person or communicating with them, I'm hearing that for a lot of people, business is really good and they're doing well. They have to be more creative, more innovative in some instances. But it sounds to me from the businesses that I talk to that when times get tough, they need more help, not less help. When things are, when businesses are struggling, they need more answers, more solutions. And if you can be a solution instead of an expense, then I think the time has never been better for speakers. Where else have you been? What else is happening out there? Well, of course, in the last year, and I took over as this year, 08, 09, president of the International Federation for Professional Speakers. There's a mouthful of the Federation in August in New York City at the NSA meeting. But in the last year, I've been to South Africa and Australia, Singapore, been to England and Canada, of course, been to, am I forgetting countries, a bunch of other countries out there, China, a bunch of places in the world. And uh, so I see a lot of different things. And of course, I hear so much from all the people that are in touch, Reg Atwal out in uh, Dubai, talking about things going on in that part of the world. So get an interesting perspective. And in some ways, you learn the more things are different, the more things are the same. But everybody has a different perspective, a different idea on things. And that's why it's such a great thing to be part of this community of speakers. We have such an amazing global community. Explain to me how the community can use the IFFPS as a resource for their business. I don't beat the drum for the Federation. I beat the drum for your home country, for the country of which you're a member, because they're the ones providing the value and the resources for you, and they're the ones that your dues help support and allow them to create that value. The Federation is was set up so that someone who wants a country, who wants to become a leading speakers association in the world community, can have some standards and can have some guidelines and have some ideas of of how to establish their association. The benefits that we provide for the individuals who are members of our country membership, the best one, of course, is that business of being a member of a world community of speakers. And I'll use the example. If you're a sales trainer, you have the people in your own home country association. If it's a bigger association, you probably have chapters. And you have somebody in your home chapter. You may even have created a mastermind group from that chapter, from fellow speakers that you know. But have you ever considered going to the IFFPS.org, IFFPS.org website? Let's say you're from Canada. Click on South Africa, go to find a member, and put in sales trainer. And all of a sudden, you're going to have 5, 10, 20 new people in the world, maybe you'd never met any of them, who are in the sales training business. 
And what if you dropped them an email and communicated and suggested, here's here's something that I'm doing in Canada, which is working really well for me in my sales training. And here's a challenge that I'm facing and I hear other people facing. What's going on in South Africa? What are you doing about this? And who else do you know that might have some insights on this? All of a sudden, you've met a person that you are likely never to have met in your entire life who has some expertise that you can benefit from and you can share some of your expertise with them. That's to me one of the great benefits of the Federation, that a world community is now linked together. We used the term a year or so ago, a, a global power grid that allows all these ideas to be shared back and forth. And of course, when people come to events like the Global Speakers Summit, that's happening in April in Cape Town, South Africa. And people coming to that, and again, go to the IFFPS.org website, and you'll get lots of information on that and other events around the world. Let's say, uh, Camille, you're traveling to Europe sometime in, uh, in March, and you discover that by looking at the website, looking at the calendar, that you could go to Antwerp and be part of the Holland Speakers Association, the Professional Speakers Association of Holland, be part of their annual meeting and get to meet some folks again you may never meet and do it at their member rate because as part of this federation you get that benefit as well you could come up with a whole different experience maybe you're just traveling to uh, to the united states sometime soon and you're going to be in cincinnati well you go to the nsa website look up people in from cincinnati and maybe there's somebody that that you'll meet that will give you a whole new perspective not necessarily on speaking maybe on what's going on in cincinnati all kinds of benefits. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it really is a, a huge grid, as you say. I like to think of it more as kind of a spider's web and how we're creating a bit of a web and we can all connect on the web. What would Cavett think? I think he would be thrilled, don't you? Well, to, to imagine Cavett, I had the honor of knowing Cavett uh, because I've been part of National Speakers Association in the U.S. for the last 20 years and part of NSAA in Australia almost as long. And uh, I had the pleasure of knowing him. And when he started this a long time ago, I'm sure he never could have imagined that that little meeting in Phoenix, Arizona today would, would have some 5,500 members worldwide, 10 associations, more on the way. And, uh, and people going to Cape Town again in, in April to um, be part of a community that uh, is literally changing the world. We hear about that term used a lot. Each time we get up on the platform, each time we share a message, whether the message is motivational or humor or training or uh, teaching people different skill sets, each time we get up, we, we do impact people's lives. We make people's lives better. And that's not everybody can say they necessarily do that for a living. So you mentioned that uh, other countries coming online. Who, who's out there? Who's coming online in the future? We've been communicating with China, we're communicating with the, the Middle East, and we're interested in a couple of other large countries in the world because they have huge populations. India would be an example, Brazil's an example, uh, places in the world where there's a big community of speakers. There's a lot of businesses, a lot of people sharing information, sharing ideas, but no organized associations. So those are those are places of interest to us in the world, and I'm sure the members listening to this uh, would have other suggestions, and we're open for suggestions. 
Well, that's great. Well, we'll make sure that they get in contact with you, and that would be through the IFFPS.org website? The IFFPS.org website, absolutely. And right. boy, just, it's just a treat to hear from people and, and get ideas, and I'll see a whole bunch of people listening to this broadcast uh, as I travel around the world doing the rest of the year that I'm the president. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for the jobs that you are doing, traveling, and it's been great having you on VOE. You travel safe. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Camille. In her search for seeds of success, this month, Dolores Presley stumbled on a very impressive batch. SOS! I'm calling for an SOS. I'm calling for a seed of success. Actually, some seeds of success. This is Dolores Presley, your host for Seeds of Success. I have Joel Weldon. Joel Weldon, oh my goodness, you've heard probably about him. He is the only speaker to have earned all four, did you hear me, all four of the highest honors in the speaking profession. He had the induction into the CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame, the Converted Communications and Leadership Award, the Golden Gavel for his professional profound impact on corporate America. And now he's been given the legend, the legend of the Speaking Business Award. He's also a charter member of NSA. Welcome, Joel Weldon. Well, thank you, Dolores, and uh, good to be talking to some of my old NSA friends and members and new members. I have a car that I have had on my desk. Well, I just retired from teaching. But seriously, I had that little success comes in cans on my desk for at least 20 years taped on there because it is such a profound, uh, profound thought. Success comes in cans. How did you develop that idea of success comes in cans? Well, uh, it is, of course, for those who haven't seen it, it is an actual can. But it started back in 1974 when I started speaking. And as my business started to grow, I needed business cards. But I knew I didn't want a two-inch by three-and-a-half-inch business card like everybody else's. I wanted something different. But most of all, I wanted something that people would keep on their desks. And as you just said, you've had that can on your teaching desk for 20 years. And... One day, a client said to me something. He said, Joel, you know success comes in cans. And boom, it was just an aha. And I saw that message on a can. And I extended that little original thought to say success comes in cans, not in cannots. And within 24 hours, I had the first can made. And on that can are the ingredients. And if you remember what was on your desk those 20-some-odd years as an elementary school teacher, because people always say when they pick up the can, it's heavy, weighs about half a pound. What's in the can? So it's commitment, courage, faith, goals, imagination, creativity, honesty, persistence, knowledge, defined values, focused thinking, a sense of humor, and, of course, a positive I can attitude. And we immediately registered that as our trademark and over all these years, we have aggressively protected that because that's really our brand. And our clients and customers, anybody who gets our CDs or DVDs or handouts at a meeting, uh, that image is on everything we do. Uh, we've developed that brand. And, of course, the key thing is tens of thousands of people like you, Dolores, have had that can on their desk. 
many of them for 20 or 30 <laughs> years. And so the question really for our NSA listeners and for you is, what could you create for your clients, your customers, to show them what it is you do that they might keep on their desk and show it to other people or want to get them for their employees or even for their kids? So maybe that's the first thing our listeners could do. Uh, Dolores has set a goal to establish their own brand, their own identity, and to make it unique, representative of them. So basically, that's how the can came about. That's so interesting. So how, just tell us how important it is to brand yourself. Well, people call me the can man, or somebody <laughs> like you says, you know, I don't remember this guy, but I was at a meeting, and he had this can. I've had it on my desk, and every time I have a problem or something, I start thinking about what I can do, not what I can't do. So I, I think it's very important uh, to do that. Uh, I didn't want my picture to be my brand. I mean, there's nothing wrong with how I look, but I'm not that pretty. <laughs> but the can was different. So, yes, I think everybody does need to have something uh, that represents them, that's something that people can remember. I know you use the decaf message, right? I do. D-C-A-F. And you can use that in creative ways. And And... I think that's what a what a brand does. This this is good. This is good. Now we're spreading seeds of success, helping people grow and nurture their speaking business and any type of business that they have. What is your best seed of success that you have received in business or or life, and how has it helped you? You have worked for some of the greatest, impressive companies. I think one of the best things that ever happened was at an NSA convention, nineteen seventy six. There were 128 people, Dolores, at that meeting. Could you imagine? That I was can't. a whole convention. Because <laughs> now it's thousands, but okay. And one of the speakers was a humorist, Dr. Charles Jarvis, one of the leading speakers of that era. And after the program was over, which was so tremendous, a whole crowd gathered around the swimming pool at Camelback Inn. And they wanted to know, Dr. Jarvis, you know, how do I grow my business? How do I get more business? You know, is it my brochure? Is it the marketing? You know, is it an agent? What do I do? And he, being kind of a crusty fellow, said, it isn't any of that stuff. <laughs> it's not your brochure. It's not your marketing. It's not your agents. It's you. you got to get good. And then he walked away. And I went, aha. That was one of the best pieces of advice I'd ever heard. And that was really the seed of success. And then I asked myself, well, how do I get good? Well, I guess i got to figure out what do I do wrong and stop doing it and figure out what I do right and keep doing it. So I came up with an evaluation card system that ever since that day we have used with every audience I've ever spoken for. And on that little evaluation card, it asked the audience what they liked best, what they liked least, what was the best idea they got. And then on a little 1 to 10 rating scale, how would they rate the, con rate, the content, the delivery, and compared to every other speaker they've ever heard. Now, Dolores, if half a million to three-quarters of a million people told you what you do great and what you should stop doing, how much intelligence does it take to figure <laughs> out, okay, if I stop doing this and start doing this more, i got to get better. And that's really what happened. And you asked about my career. It was that system of figuring out how to get better, keeping the good and expanding on it, and getting rid of the stuff that wasn't working and then expanding on what the audience came away with as their best idea. So from the little local meetings in Arizona that I started doing, it led to regional and national meetings. And then, of course, with that can on their desk, the referrals, the repeat business kept coming in. 
And then Judy, my wife, and I worked at this business together, and together we came up with the idea of tying my fee to those evaluation cards, which meant on a 1 to 10 scale, anything under a 7, I wasn't going to get paid for. If you hired me today, you don't care what I've done 2,768 times before. All you care about is what am I going to do for your meeting. So I want to put my fee on the line every time I speak. And I average one negative for every 227 evaluation cards that come back. And we deduct a proportion of our fee for anything under a seven. And that seed of success, really, that I heard at the NSA convention is what led me to be able to move up in corporate America from the local meetings to the regional to the national meetings, because people hadn't heard of me. I wasn't a celebrity speaker or famous. Maybe people in NSA know who I am or in the speaking profession, but if you weren't a client, you really didn't know who I was. I wasn't a baseball player or a movie star or uh, somebody that was on Oprah. <laughs> but hey, if this guy's willing to put his fee on the line, he's got to be pretty confident he can do it. And you still do that to this day? Still do it to, that, to this day, absolutely. And, uh, and all the cards go back to the client, and a summary is written out, and, and that is a unique factor. And I have shared this message for decades at NSA. And a few people do it, but most don't want to. Speakers want to say, oh, you were great. Everything was awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, well, if Dr. Jarvis was right in 1976, the key to getting more business is to be good. How can you get good if you don't know what you're doing? I mean, some people say, I know if I'm good. Well, I don't think it matters what you think. It's what the audience thinks. They're your customers, and they know. So why not ask them? Very interesting. So that, that was one of the unique factors. So you are a celebrity now, and you're a great motivator. How did you get national attention after you got great, and how are you getting attention to go to all these places and all these companies? Well, it's really that can, because we don't market. We have never marketed in all these years. We don't advertise, promote. All, all Dr. Jarvis said is you've got to do good programs. And then if you have a way, you asked about branding, people to remember you. And you said you had as an educator that can on your desk for 20 years. So as our NSA listeners are <laughs> listening, if you've been around 20 years, ask yourself, how many of the people who have heard you speak have your business card on their desk for 20 years? That's and would remember you? Well, probably not a lot. Now, I'm not saying that everybody certainly remembers me, but if they got one of those cans... They saved it. It was different. It was unique. And I think that's one of the keys to, to being successful today is there are so many speakers out there. What makes you as an NSA member different or unique or special that stands out? I mean, if you got into a, an elevator in downtown Canton, Ohio today, going up to the top floor, and there was an elephant in the elevator. Would you talk about it when you got off the elevator going to see your client? <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> I can't believe it. I stepped in there was an elephant in the elevator. That's different. That's unique. Well, I think as speakers, you've got to be different and unique. You have to have a message or something about you that stands out from ordinary. And that's what extraordinary means. And that was that seed of success that Dr. Jarvis planted way back in 1976. And speaking of elephants, you did a speech for NSA back in 1981 called Elephants Don't Bite? Yes. Now, how did you come up with that topic? 
Well, let me ask you this, Dolores. As you're listening, have you ever been bitten by a gnat, a mosquito, or a bee? Of course. Have you been bitten by an elephant? Never. No, because it's the little things that get you, not the big. Mm. And that's what happened on July 28th of 1981 at the NSA convention at the Arizona Biltmore. They had me do a program really on professional speaking, on all the little things that happen that go wrong, that cause big results, uh, I mean big negatives, and then all the things, the little things you do that get you big results that are positive. And there were 41 things I talked about in that two-hour session. And there were 452 people. Now, how do I know how many people were there? Because I have all the evaluation cards. <laughs> Every one of those people critiqued that meeting and wrote what they liked best, what they liked least, what their best idea was, and then rated it on a 1 to 10 scale. And at that meeting, it was so different because in the early days of NSA, we didn't really have the kind of stage control of audiovisual and sound uh, techniques and room setup that we have today at conventions. And a lot of things went wrong at that meeting. And I was near the end of the program. And I incorporated all the things that the audience had seen go wrong on how to do them right, how to set up the room, how to have checklists, how to prepare ahead of time how to get participation, how to handle questions that are difficult, controlling the environment. And that's what made that meeting so special. And then the ratings came back. They were the highest ever at NSA, and that's why people seem to still remember that from 1981. <laughs> but wouldn't it be wonderful today if they went back to evaluating speakers? Because in those days, every convention speaker was evaluated. I mean, today, if you got up in front of 2,000 professional speakers, wouldn't it be wonderful as a speaker, Dolores, to have 2,000 people who do what you do tell you what you do great and what you need to improve in? Yes, that feedback would be great. And you as an Very educator valuable. know how important it is. I mean, that's what a test is for. Here's what you know. Here's what you don't know. That's good. And here's your score. So we shouldn't be afraid of feedback. And it's not just feel good. I mean, the things I look at first are what they didn't like, because those are the things we want to keep eliminating awesome advice now if you could do one thing differently in your business what would that be or in life one thing differently in well let's take business i tell you i would focus more locally i mean years ago 30 years ago 90 percent of our business was in arizona now 90 percent of our business is out of arizona and dolores you travel you've been in 40 states right yes it's not fun traveling anymore by air is it not really it's difficult so I think one of the things I would do differently is I would focus more on that local business that I used to have. My last two programs happened to have been in Arizona, and I drove to work. It was wonderful. And yet Tuesday, I'm going to Virginia, and I'm going to have to fly to go to work. So my suggestion for our listeners as NSA members, don't neglect your home market. Focus where you are. Now, the naysayers say, well, you're never going to be a prophet in your own town. <laughs> well, you don't have to be a prophet. You just need to be a speaker. And I think you can get a lot of business locally and save on the airfare and the expenses of hotels for your client because you say you're right there. So that would be something I would have done differently. What is a challenge that you have encountered? A in challenge? Oh. Well, that's pretty easy, too. Um, my biggest challenge is working with my clients to give them the kind of material I need to build a program, because I only do custom programs. It takes me 50 hours to prepare. And 
I ask a lot of questions and ask for a lot of material from my clients. And if it's the first time I've ever worked with them, they don't understand how important that is until after the program is over. Once the program's over, they understand the power of a totally customized program for their people, for their needs, for that specific day at that particular event. And when they bring me back again, then it's easy. What's one of the important questions that you ask when you're meeting with the meeting planner and you're doing your interview and setting up for your 50 hours? Well, I think one of the most important things, and this is certainly not new for our NSA listeners, but if you were hiring me for a program, the first question I would say to you is, Dolores, you're standing at the door, the meeting is over, everybody shakes your hand and says, Joel was wonderful. We loved him. And you say, good, I'm glad you liked him. What are you going to do? Dolores, if you could tell me the three things that you want your people to do as a result of what we're going to do at that meeting, what would those three things be? So that's the first and most important question. And then the rest of it is understanding that organization, like this meeting I mentioned in Virginia. I have 17 managers that are going to be in the room, and I have comments about every one of them in my presentation. I know who the fisherman is. I know the guy who just got a new car. I know the person that has twins. All of that is done in this preparation and is tied into the program in little quickie one-liners dropped here or there. And so the, ch- the question you're asking is the challenge is because this is so different than most of the speakers they've ever hired, where they say they customize and they get a brochure and they drop in the name of the industry or the business, that's not customizing. I've got to know as much about that company and that group as the people in the seats do. And it takes me two minutes to do that, and hopefully the person sitting next to you in the audience would say, hey, this guy knows what's going on. I think I'm going to listen. And I'm sure, Dolores, in all the meetings you've been to, especially when you were an educator and you went to an educational conference and they had a guest speaker, you probably turned to somebody next to you and said, they don't know what's going on. (laughs) They don't have any idea what we're going through. So why would you listen to somebody like that? And the same thing as professional speakers. I think when you stand up to speak, the audience must know you are prepared for them and that this message is for them. It's not about you. It's about them. And that's my toughest challenge the first time with a client. And, of course, uh, it, you know, if Dr. Jarvis was right way back many years ago, is you've got to get good. Well, how can you be good if you don't know about the people you're talking to? That is great. You are prepared. Speaking of homework, I don't think I've interviewed anyone who knows as much about me as I know about them. I've done all sorts of research <laughs> on you. You know more about me than I know about you because you did your homework. You were prepared. Grant, oh, <laughs> that's my husband, Grant. Let's know. Your husband. <laughs> yes. But that's what I'm saying. Talk about being prepared and doing your homework. I would love to talk to you longer. I, they're probably well, let me just stop gonna... How did you feel when you knew that I was that you were an elementary school teacher for 27 years in Canton, Ohio, and your husband is Grant, and you used decaf, and you ran a modeling agency for plus-size women, and you used the A-list message of asking, acting, and, and appreciating, and we're on Oprah. I mean, what does that say about what I'm saying to you? It made me feel incredible. I thought, wow, no, this is a man I want to hear speak because he, it was about me, not about you. But really, it is about you, but you turned it and flipped it right back around. And, and that's what just, our listeners need to do. You're a joy to talk to. It was my pleasure. You enjoy your day. Make it a great day. We'll do that. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.
Next up is CSP Sam Silverstein, National President. Not to be confused with Sam Silverstein of the Department of Physics at Stockholm University. Then again, that could be a great connection. You know, Stockholm is a lovely place. How are your speaker relationships? In the past few weeks, I've been recommended by a speaker for a job. I've recommended two different speakers for two different jobs. I've been given the name of a writer who could help me with a book project I'm working on. I just received an email from a speaker's agent about software needs and ideas for speakers. A speaker friend shared a work-for-hire agreement with me, saving me both time and money. I've watched a preview video for a friend and had a friend watch my new preview video. I've been to countless lunches and coffees with speakers at all levels and shared ideas back and forth each time. It's almost exhausting. The good news is that we're in a people business. And the more people we connect with, the better the chances that good things can happen. Someone once told me that they left NSA because NSA never got them a job. Well, NSA isn't here to get us a job. We come to NSA for the education and the community. That community exists at national events, at chapter events, on the phone, on Skype, Twitter, and even on Facebook. By the way, if you're not familiar with a couple of those terms, then come to the very next conference or convention and attend a session on social networking. The bottom line is that we need to work on our businesses. We also need to work on our professional relationships. Look to give wherever possible. What you'll find is that there will be someone out there that will be giving what you happen to need. By being engaged in the speaking community, we all grow. We build a bigger pie, and we all benefit. It's a great place to be. This is Randy Pennington, chair of the NSA Foundation Board of Trustees, reminding you that it's grant-giving time at the NSA Foundation. Check out MyNSA.org for details on the 2009 Educational Scholarships for Students and the 2009 Art Berg Technology Grant for Nonprofit Organizations. In Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise this month, Marie Ferrugia stays on topic in her chat with award-winning CPA and Certified Financial Planner Anne Graham. Hi Anne, thanks for joining me today. It's lovely having you along. Thanks Marie, nice to be here. Obviously one of your fortes as having been a multi-awarded financial planner is planning for the future. What are some areas that you, uh, or or some tips that you have around perhaps looking at short-term and long-term planning? Oh, short-term and long-term. If you don't know what you want, it's really hard to get. So you need to give some thought to what your goals are. Mm -hmm. So short-term, it might just be meeting normal expenses. Medium-term might be updating a car, having a holiday. Long-term, it might be retirement or purchasing a home. But the main thing is to... Think about what you want, but write it down. You need to write it down. Mm -hmm. It becomes much more real then. Put a definite time frame around each goal. So don't be vague and think, I'll retire in about 20 years or sometime in the future. You need to say, I want to retire in 2020 and I want to retire with a lump sum of X dollars. Or a medium-term goal might be, I plan to have a holiday overseas in five years' time and I will need to spend $20,000 on that holiday, whatever. Right. Okay. Would you recommend the same thing for business expenses or business 
investments, if you like, investing back into the business. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, that comes down to business planning and mm -hmm. having a medium and long-term plan for your business. You might have a five-year business plan. You would break that up into an annual business plan and then the annual plan could be broken up into quarters. Great. It makes it much more manageable, easier to achieve, less daunting. Mm -hmm. If things go well, you, you can tick that off. If things don't go so well in a quarter, then you can address it in the next quarter. Terrific. Now, and one of the things that uh, I think, you know, obviously here in Australia, we love using credit cards, and I dare say that's the same worldwide. What are your thoughts on credit cards, line of credit, to help, if you like, with that cash flow or... Mm. Yeah. They can be the work of the devil, or they, <laughs> or they, they can be marvellous. It comes down to discipline. And in most plans, whether it's for uh, business or personal, uh, we always suggest that, if possible, you have an amount of cash set aside for emergencies and contingencies. Uh, and that cash might be equivalent to six months' income. Most people don't have the luxury of being able to do that. So an alternative is to have a pre-arranged line of credit or a credit card with, with a reasonable uh, limit on it. Have it in your mind that they're used for emergencies or as a t to manage the timing of income to expenses. So you might have an expense coming up at the end of this month, but your main payment from the last engagement you had might not be due till the following month. Mm -hmm. So that means you can pay your expense on your credit card or, or draw it down on a loan knowing full well you've got the income to cover it immediately and that's what you need to do. Now one of the things in business that we're told all the time is you know that, that classic you know, that you not only work in your business but also on your business. How does that relate when it comes to our finances Anne? Oh it's very important um, and finances and business planning it's um, everyone's trying to grow their business you're always trying to get more speaking engagements you're out trying to get the next job or at least um, do your research and preparation for the next job but not many people actually allocate time to do their planning for their business and that that involves doing the five-year plan or you know the quarterly plan it's really important and that, that comes back down to finances as well. Doing your weekly accounts, making sure that the money that you're expected to come in has come in. Mm -hmm. Following it up if it hasn't. Making sure that you've paid all of your bills on time as well. Doing the next month's projections on, on what you think the income will be compared to the outgoings. Paying the bills. All of those basic standard things that a lot of people really don't enjoy doing. They don't like numbers, they don't like money, and they put it off. And so all of the receipts will end up in a shoebox, which gets put on the accountant's table at the end of the year when taxes are due. It's not a good way. You're not managing. All you're doing is postponing the inevitable. Mm -hmm. And I guess, of course, when you're working on that on a regular basis, you know full well what the picture is. Exactly. It's, exactly. Um, yeah. You, yeah, exactly. You have a really good understanding of what's happening, what's going to happen, and you have a sense of control then, mm. and you're not just sort of being swept away with everyone else. You, you've really got control over where you're going and, and what's happening. Mm. And one of the things that uh, I guess, well, happens from time to time, we only have to look at it historically, and that is the fluctuation in markets and good press, bad press when it comes to matters mm. financial. What's your advice around keeping level-headed around that? Um, don't read newspapers. <laughs> um, it's trying just to keep perspective and, and everyone gets affected when markets are going up. 
there's a lot of euphoria and people are happy and they want to invest and they want to spend money because they can only see the, the blue sky. When markets are going down, it's very depressing. Petrol prices are going up. People's confidence gets shattered and, and confidence is a really important thing. Mm. So to keep perspective, I jokingly don't read newspapers, but really try not to uh, focus too much on it. it. That's just gossip, speculation. A lot of it's not factual. Try and keep your eye on the longer term and, and goal setting helps you do that. Managing your money um, weekly or monthly as well rather than waiting till the end of the year and seeing the accountant also helps because you do have that sense of control and control does give you confidence. Mm. So a lot of people do get affected by short-termism and doom and gloom or euphoria, whatever it is, but the longer term is what's important. Thanks for your advice and thanks for your time. Thanks, Marie. I caught up with a doctor recently. That is our very own Professor of Professional Speaking from Oxbridge University, Dr. Inesay. Dr. Inesay, I wanted to ask you a question. You know, they say in the corporate world that McDonald's, the fantastic hamburger chain's key to success is having a system. So do you believe speakers also need systems to be successful? Oh, Camille, definitely, definitely they do. Um, in fact, what we teach here um, in our curriculum and, and syllabus um, in the various programs, degree and non-degree and undergraduate and postgraduate, internal and external, by correspondence, uh, what we teach here, um, although that's, of course, not necessarily what is learnt, um, is a, a, a systemic way of looking at uh, speech making and it's based on systems thinking so that a thinking system is in fact um, uh, created from it in a systemic uh, and systematized way and uh, a number of resources as inputs go into the creation of the system that helps in the production of a speech and I'm happy to enumerate uh, those in some sort of priority order if that would be of interest. Yes of course. Well the, the first uh, the first uh, uh, input is, of course, the person uh, themselves, the human resource. Um, the, the second is the amount of money that is available uh, to uh, uh, pay that person um, uh, to develop the presentation and also to deliver it. Uh, the, the third would be the, the physical or, uh, environment, the auditorium, uh, the, 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 the staging and, and the lighting and the sound and so on. Um, and, and then I suppose there is uh, time, the ultimate finite resource, whether it's a denominator or a numerator, depends on where you did your math or, or, or maths, uh, because in Britain here we're a pluralistic society. But taking that multicultural metaphor one step further, you know, the, the snake in Taoist philosophy, which is impossibly improbably uh, swallowing its own tail um, so that it becomes a a kind of increasingly concentric circle. Well, in the same way, this this thinking system, based on systems thinking, uh, that we're talking about to uh, uh, create a better speech, is in fact part of its own input as a sort of endlessly self-calibrating feedback loop. And what we do here at Oxbridge is we input those inputs as input, and then as throughput, we transform them into output. Uh, the outcome from which we'd like to measure initially qualitatively and ultimately quantitatively against a plethora of hierarchies and an aggregation of continua, followed by an, you know, a collection, 
really of assessment criteria before we feed them back into the system as as refined input and usually a submission to the high degrees committee for further funding um i'd be happy to talk a bit further about the philosophy behind that, Camille, if that's of interest. Well, perhaps in our next interview, Dr. Inese, because it does sound quite in-depth. Well, okay, I'll just give you the, the PowerPoint, bullet point, executive summary, the, the outline uh, now as kind of a teaser, a taster, something to whet the appetite. Would that be okay? Yes, that'd be fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to give the kind of approximation of the the verisimilitude of the the facsimile of the, the facts, because it's based this this system for developing a speech on an idea, and I know that many speakers are proudly pragmatic and practical and down to earth, and may I say, anti-intellectual, and from what I can tell, uniquely qualified to be so. But I commend to them um, and to you that the nature of an idea. Um, as it is able to be transformed uh, from a precept into a concept, uh, from a concept uh, it can be ameliorated uh, into a model and then enhanced and enabled into a template, uh, initially just two-dimensional with an X and Y axis and four quadrants before being exploded into a a three-dimensional Rubik's Cube type manifestation of the same before being pushed out the other side as a, a shifted paradigm. And I think this is where it gets really interesting, Camille. We're able to, at the University of Oxbridge, um, in the, the Faculty of uh, Professional Speaking, uh, connect the thinking system based on systems thinking on the one hand with the uh, idea, uh, the philosophy on the other, by uh, constructing some theoretical and hypothetical, simultaneously converging and diverging parallel lines so that the various component parts are integrated and synthesized into a holistic totality which contextualizes the content because content without context has no meaning and in academia we like to be lucid and articulate rather than facile and gratuitous. Anyway, I mention all this, Camille, before I begin and I wonder if we do have time to, to go on or if this is something for the next version of VOE. That probably rounds it up very nicely, Dr. NSA, for this month. Uh, Absolutely fantastic, your philosophies, and I hope someday to be able to join you at Oxbridge and learn more from you. I'm sure our audience is uh, looking forward to hearing your next posting. Well, Camille, I I understand that you've already been notified that you'll be the first uh, Master of Ceremonies to receive an honorary doctorate from the University of Oxbridge, and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person after all these years. That would be very exciting, and thank you very much, Dr. Inese from Oxbridge University, our Professor of Professional Speaking. All the best. Thank you. On Take 10 with Camille this month, I was excited to be talking to a newly minted certified speaking professional. Join me as I get down to business with South African CSP, Paul Detoy. Your first question on Take 10 with Camille, a book or a product that made a difference to your business? Well, there's no question, Camille. When I was at CAPS in Halifax in December 2007, I bought Kathleen Fillmore's The Six Figure Speaker. And it really has given me so many insights that at the time I didn't have um, about the speaking business. And the one thing in particular that came out of that was 
was how to put together your one sheet. And it, uh, it really helped me a lot. What was also lovely was that she has contributions from various very high quality and established speakers in their areas of expertise. And uh, it was really a tremendous book. It's called The Six-Figure Speaker, and it's a formula for a six-figure income as a professional speaker. It really is a humdinger of a book, and it's a wonderful read. Excellent. Well, that's a great resource. Thanks for that. A platform tip that works well for you, you could recommend? I find that the one area that many speakers neglect is a very obvious one, and that is the use of gestures. Now, if you go into a coffee shop and you watch people having a discussion, you will find that a number of people are automatically quite animated in the gestures that they use with their hands and their arms, and even their facial expressions. But I'm going to focus specifically on gestures. And when we put together our keynote, we seem to be so focused on the content uh, that we're creating that we almost forget some of the finer points of delivery and that you can actually choreograph in gestures to make your content have more meaning. And I think I did learn a long time ago that content is terribly important, but the way you deliver it is going to make the difference between an ordinary speech and a speech that is simply brilliant. So I would really advise speakers to spend a bit of time on their gestures and watch what they're doing. In other words, do a little bit of rehearsal in the mirror and specifically look at how those gestures complement what they're saying. Great, yes. And move with purpose is another term that I've heard very often. Oh, very much so. And there's a little trick, of course, and that is when you take a step backwards, you're actually subtracting from what you're saying. So never take a step back while you're making an important point. Rather do that during a pause in your delivery. Mm, I like that one. All right. Well, while we're on the topic of tips, what about a marketing tip? But what to me is really important is that I'm marketing not just for today and for next month and the end of 2009. I'm also marketing for 2014. And if we just keep that marketing coming, in other words, if we output, the input will come from somewhere. In hindsight, then, what do you wish you had known before you started or when you first started? <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I think that the, my, my personal answer to that is I wish that I had understood long ago that my content always was good enough, that I shouldn't doubt myself, and that I should rather focus more attention in making sure that I'm putting that message across in a compelling way. So many speakers are, in fact, subject experts. They know their content. It's really selecting the best of your content, and then giving enough ten attention to delivering it in a compelling way, that is what is going to make your message really special. Yes, and isn't it so true that sometimes the lessons come later on? So you've got to hang in there, I believe. I think they have to come later on. You know, when we teach presentation skills, we, we teach people that it's like learning to drive a car. And when you get your license, uh, you're not particularly good. And you're not necessarily particularly good a year later. But maybe five, six years later, if you have um, really focused on your driving skills and you've gone on an advanced course and you've, you've implemented what you've learned, you can become a really good driver. But it takes years. It's not just something that happens immediately and really shouldn't be in a hurry. I like those thoughts. Well, then we look forward now. And what do you think is the biggest challenge for speakers in the future, Paul? Well, the biggest challenge is, in fact, quite a danger. And that is the... Uh, listening to the doom and gloom and being too caught up in trying to identify that our situation is directly related to the economic challenges that are facing uh, people globally right now. And the reality is that 
it is in these times that people need us the most. Now, what has struck me as being quite interesting is that motivational speaking as such seems to have been on the wane in the last six, seven, eight years or so. But I believe that it's in for a stunning comeback because right now when people are down, when people are losing their jobs, when they're frightened of not being employed in three months' time, uh, that is when they need people to go out and really motivate them. And I'm finding that more and more of my, um, my business that is, that is coming along in my bookings for next year are not on the fresher, newer topics and the more fancy, fancy, intricate stuff. It's, in fact, people going back to motivation and saying that our people are really down at the moment and we need somebody to pick them up. So if we can refresh those motivation messages and realize that there's a tremendous opportunity not just to make income but to make a difference out there and to keep people going in the meantime, and we get our perception away from how our cash flow could be uh, affected by budgets being slashed, I think speakers had a huge opportunity and the opportunity now is greater than it's ever ever been before now is when the world needs speakers oh isn't that great and everyone's going to love hearing that news paul (laughs) well i I sincerely believe it and 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 i really think that if you've got something to say uh, you should double your efforts to make sure that people are hearing it that's lovely well thank you paul so much for your insights and we look forward to seeing you soon somewhere in the international circuit Absolutely. Well, particularly at the Global Speakers Summit in April in Cape Town. I'd like to see everyone there. Thanks once again, Paul, for joining us on VOE. You are most welcome and thank you for the invite. They're everywhere. You can't ignore them. They're your employees, your fellow entrepreneurs, your target market. And if you're like me, they're living right down your hall. Yes, it's the next gen. Here with segment producer Graham Codrington. In this segment, I want to speak to you about the impact that the next generation of young people is having on our industry, or more specifically, on the mice industry. That, as I'm sure you're aware, is the meetings, incentives, conferences, and exhibitions industry. And especially for those of us who do keynoting for a living, this is our lifeblood. Recently, in December 2008, I was at EIBTM the European Exhibition and Conference for the Meetings Industry. And in March 2009, I'll be with Meeting Professionals International, MPI, in Europe. At both of those events, I was asked to do workshops with meeting professionals on the topic of making the most of the millennials, making the most of the next generation. Millennial generation, next gen, generation Y, all of these are synonymous terms for a new generation of young people who are coming into the workplace. Different people working on generations define this generation differently with different start and end birth dates, but in general we all agree that these are the young people who have been entering our workplaces for the last few years. Teenagers, young 20-somethings who have arrived with a new set of expectations and probably most importantly the confidence to articulate those expectations. This is a new generation of young people. They're not just going through a phase. They're not going to grow up and become like us. They have a different worldview, different approaches. We've spoken about this before. But what I want to do now is talk about just four simple ways in which you can adapt to your speaking uh, or training uh, career to take advantage and, and to connect more effectively with this new generation. 
So, four simple implications for us as speakers. Firstly, and let's start with the obvious, this is a generation that is tech savvy. They love technology and have grown up in a world that is interconnected with the internet and mobile cell phones uh, being just standard for them. They're what some people have called digital natives, whereas parents are more likely digital immigrants. They have superb knowledge and skills in using computers and digital tools. But it's not just that they enjoy technology or are comfortable or capable with it that is important for us. It is how they use technology. Most importantly, they see technology as a way of connecting with other people, as a way of facilitating how they actually communicate. What we need to do, therefore, is make sure that we connect in with this tech savvy that they have. A number of implications, then, for us as speakers. Firstly, if you don't already provide some form of digital connection with your audiences, you need to do that as soon as you can. It can be as simple as just making some of your resources available for download. Uh, it could be that you provide some of your programs through the uh, digital means, and I know more and more of us are, are doing this. For those of you who are already providing digital connections, be they podcasts or videos or downloads, what you need to do is go further than simply providing things for download. This generation loves collaborative tools. These have often been called Web 2.0 tools because it goes beyond the first level of the Internet, which was simply making information available. It goes to Web 2.0, which is about collaborating with information. This has got to do with blogs and wikis. And you can see the way that people interact on YouTube and Facebook and MySpace and, and other types of social networking uh, environments. What we need to do as speakers is not just provide content, but allow our audience members to actually participate and collaborate with us in generating that content itself. At very least, you need to be creating spaces on your websites where people can interact with your content, giving feedback, providing comments, which you then make publicly available. Think of the way that Amazon, for instance, uh, allows you to see other people purchases. If you purchase this book, you may also like these other books. Uh, the way that you are able to comment on videos on, on YouTube, uh, you need to do that with your own course materials as well. We maybe also need to think about the way that we work in our actual sessions when we're presenting live. Uh, increasingly, young people are going to be bringing their laptops and their, their PDAs and Blackberries into our sessions. Uh, don't get all hung up about somebody sitting with a laptop working while you are actually doing a presentation. Sure, they might be answering one or two emails while they listen to you and take notes digitally. But then you can't guarantee that the person sitting next to them with a notepad in front of them isn't doodling or making a shopping list while they're listening to you. So maybe just get over the fact that there will be technology in some of your sessions. We also need to help conference venues, by the way, to get over this too. The number of conference venues I go to that don't have adequate power supplies for the number of laptop users or have bad Wi-Fi or even worse, charge you some exorbitant fee for 
Wi-Fi connections. Well, it's just ridiculous. And if you have any ability to influence conference venues, go ahead and tell them that this is a utility. It should be available for free. But why not? And I know it might be a little bit of a gimmick, but why not have something available on a website that people can download live while they're listening to your program that can guide them through the session that you're doing? As I say, it may be nothing more than a gimmick at the moment, but I think it's a pretty good one. And maybe it's something you'll consider so that those people who are using tech, uh, uh, technology during your session will have something to actually keep them focused on what it is that you're actually doing. So, all of that under the heading of this generation is a very technology-savvy generation who like to use technology for connection and relationship. Number two, moving on very quickly. This generation wants to move beyond the sage-on-stage type of approach to training and education. They've grown up in a world where there's a lot of collaboration, where education itself is changing, and th there's a recognition of multiple learning styles, and uh, there's a recognition of the fact that learning happens through interaction. They coming out of a schooling system that's beginning to make those adjustments into a work environment where we very much have a sage on stage type of approach, and they want to move beyond that. Two implications for us as speakers. The first is that this generation will see through you very quickly if you don't have good content. This is a generation that has grown up with self-help books and motivational TV shows their whole lives. They don't need more of the yes, yes, yes type of people. What they need is something with real solid content. I'm not saying that they don't need motivation. But that motivation needs to come through somebody who really has a grasp of, of, of what it is that they can say and how they can contribute. If you get up on stage and tell everybody everything you know and fall flat during a question and answer session, this generation will just dismiss you out of hand. You need to make sure that you really are on top of your game when you connect with younger people. That's why probably the best audience for you ever to test your program is to do it in schools and with young people because they will immediately tell you and show you whether you are connecting or not. So make sure you've got some good content. That, I suppose, is a bit of an obvious thing to say, but this generation is going to find us out if we don't have our content sorted. The second implication is maybe more important for those of us who are introverts. And I know many of us in this industry are, in fact, introverts. We put our energy out on stage, and then we need a little bit of me time, alone time, to re-energize. Unfortunately, this generation much prefers to have informal interactions with the speakers. I've seen this over and over again in the conferencing industry, that young people are, are demanding space in the program. We're immediately following an expert input uh, session. They want to connect with the speaker. They want to have that informal time. If you have control or influence over a program, it would be really good for you to make this suggestion. It will be a way to increase your ratings, to increase the, the um, content that you deliver to the client and increase their, their feeling of value that you're adding, especially if there's a majority younger people. So spend time with the audience, not just in a formal Q&A, 
but in an, a, a structured informal session uh, afterwards. Thirdly, this generation wants the styles of meetings itself to change. Probably most importantly, they want more media. Now, I'm not using the word multimedia because that just puts us into the, the realm of thinking about videos and audio and digital screens and presentations. Those may be necessary, and if you're not using those, you may want to consider moving in that direction because that will help you connect with this younger generation. But what I'm really referring to is multiple learning and communication styles that need to be utilized throughout a meeting's programs. Today's young people are capable of taking in information from multiple sources simultaneously. We need to help our clients to adjust their meeting programs and content to take this into account. I mean, sitting through day after day of lecture-style presentations or attending yet another brainstorming session is counterproductive for this younger generation. Wherever it's possible for you to change the style, to change the approach, and to put in deliberately targeted sessions for different learning styles, well, you're going to get great feedback from today's young people. Finally, then, in my uh, list of four simple things to do, we need to understand that these young people expect more control. They value freedom and choice in everything that they do, and they expect things to be personalized and customized for them. Meeting planners and, and your clients need to understand this point. And especially in the design of conferences, companies need to involve younger staff in the actual design and development uh, of the conferences. Again, where you have influence over the conference program, make sure that you point this out, that you not just focused on piling more content into the program, but that you build in the types of informal interactions, relationship building uh, sessions that today's young people are looking for. When you get a briefing from your next client, don't just speak to the senior people in the organization. Ask specifically if you can speak to two or three of their youngest bright stars and get their involvement of the young people. You won't regret what you hear and the information that you get if you use it to personalize and customize your presentation so that especially the younger people in the audience can see you've made the effort well, again, you will make a much stronger connection. Maybe some of the things that I've said now are obvious. And maybe these are things we should be doing for every generation. Maybe that's also part of my point. Our key in moving into a next generation of thinking is not to try and accommodate a younger generation's whims and fancies. But rather, we need to identify what can be learnt from their worldview and expectation that will add value to everyone and every audience member, to how meetings are planned, organised and executed. This is Graham Codrington in London for VOE Next Gen. As many of us have witnessed, NSA meetings provide us with fantastic opportunities to grow and enhance our knowledge on many levels. NSA offers a registration grant program for the fall and winter conferences, as well as the annual convention for those members unable to afford the cost. Director of Professional Development at NSA, Cara Tracy, spoke with a recent recipient of one of these grants. Thank you, Camille. 
I'm excited to be sitting here with Deborah Gardner, president and founder of Compete Better Now. Deb, you are one of the recipients of a 2007 convention grant. Why was it important for you to have the opportunity to attend an NSA convention? Thank you, Kara, for allowing me to be here with you today to share this successful story. Well, after working in the hospitality industry for over 24 years as a salesperson and speaker from time to time, and then making a recent transition to start my own business as a full-time professional speaker, it was really important for me to have the meeting planners, which are also my customers, to continue to work with me yet in a whole new capacity. So in order to do that, I needed for them to take me seriously in my new role instead of dealing with me as what they're used to as their hotel sales contact. And after receiving excellent advice from many amazing and talented speaker friends and mentors, the best way I felt would work was to become more educated and experienced. From how I conduct my business to platform skills to the strategies that I heard were offered at the NSA conventions. Also, affirmation, that I have actually chosen the right career path for me. It's scary to leave such a great profession as the hotel industry into a new territory, and finding out a challenging career as the speaking world can be. So I even use the excuse that I'm going through a midlife purpose just to convince myself and, and others as well. Yet the people that I have met and collaborated with especially in our local Arizona chapter, who are wonderful and so supportive, helped confirm that I may be on the right track. So I thought, I'm ready to expand my affirmation by attending the national convention. The networking and the support I received along with the educational sessions were such a great inspiration. That was a turning point for me to where I knew I did not have to look at the possibility of returning back to the hotel world. And now I benefit by offering the hospitality industry and sales professionals my expertise and experiences. So I'm not going far from where I've spent most of my working days. And actually, I have the best of both worlds, um, both professions in the palm of my hand now. So overall, because of the 2007 NSA convention, I'm more confident than ever that I have chosen the right career path for me. That's awesome, Deb. What a great story. So what would you say were the top three benefits you received by attending that convention? Well, it's so hard to just pin it down to three because there are so many benefits that I received. And we can go through them all, but it's going to take us a whole night, Kara. Well, I'm not <laughs> sure we've got that. How about the top three? Okay, okay, okay. But if I had to pick, yes, the, the top three, I would say um, I was mostly focused on questions that I asked about myself earlier, like, What's it going to take to enhance my new business? And how am I going to involve myself in industry discussions with other speakers, networking-wise, while attending as many educational sessions as possible? Which, after looking at the agenda for the convention, I wished I could clone myself to do all of that in what, um, you know, was such a short period of time. I mean, those convention dates are, you know, just, just a couple days. So... So, however, I was able to achieve enough to when I returned back to the office, I was busy enough implementing all that I had learned. So the education and the networking allowed me to feel like a big part of the NSA family. Secondly, 
Starting my own business, the most difficult thing for me, and I know this happens to most of us starting out, is finding financial help to attend a convention. I remember when I got a little taste of the convention when it took place in Phoenix back in 2004. I was only able to afford a few sessions. I stayed at home. I drove back and forth, literally. And I I really looked back to that, and I felt I cheated myself out of many educational opportunities and networking while this convention was going on right in my backyard. So when I found out about the grant opportunity for the San Diego Convention in in 07, I jumped at the chance because I knew the best way for me to receive the education and the networking needed was to be there the entire time to really receive the full value, which is something we tell our customers, yet not always follow through on ourselves, right? Yes. So I was even hesitant to even go through the grant application thinking, oh, this could be tough because I'm new to NSA. Um, Because, you know, well, yes, I, I had volunteered and served on the board at the chapter level, but still thinking lots of speakers may be applying too. Well, much to my surprise, I received the grant. And since experiencing the full convention in San Diego, My career has elevated extensively from all that I had learned, and the confidence it provided has become priceless to me. Thirdly, not only did I receive great information that was helpful for my business, which was my ultimate goal, but as president for the Arizona Meetings Professionals International chapter this year, I had obtained some great useful leadership skills. So the NSA conventions are not only good for your speaking business, but it applies to other areas of your life, personally and professionally. So all three of those benefits, plus, of course, there was so much more, would not have been possible if I did not receive the grant opportunity that NSA provided. So thank you to you, Kara, to the entire staff at NSA, I, I pretty much owe you all my firstborn. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> we'll uh, make arrangements for that later. <laughs> Deb, thank you so much. I'm so glad you were able to experience the benefits of attending an NSA convention. And thank you so much for sharing your experience with all of our members. Thank you. I look forward to many more NSA conventions. Me too. And to all of you listeners out there, you too have the opportunity to apply for a registration grant for the 2009 convention, which coincidentally will be back here in Phoenix. Visit www. .mynsa.org for criteria and to download an application form. And just remember, applications are due at NSA headquarters by May 31st, 2009. Again, visit mynsa.org for all of the details. For Voices of Experience, this is Kara Tracy. From where I stand on the platform as a corporate MC, I often get the opportunity to moderate panel sessions. For speakers, offering your expertise on a panel is a great strategy to get your foot in the door, name on the program, and expertise on the table. Not only is it fun, but you get to connect and learn from other industry peers. So here are a few strategies to make the most of the opportunity. It's all about the teamwork, so connect with fellow panelists beforehand to discuss session outcomes and your particular strengths on the topic. Try not to over-prepare. Your notes should include short, focused points and quick stories or examples to engage. No PowerPoint, please. My most memorable panel was two female CEOs, 
with quite contrarian views on the topic, which made for a lively session and much discussion during the rest of the conference. Avoid being too stiff or formal. Observe fellow panelists' body language, as oftentimes they will have an aha moment from something you've said and want to chime in. Go with the flow, and if you're having fun and learning, so will your audience. The bottom line is not to hog the floor, but to respect the panel's total contribution, which is about working together to make the topic come alive and hit the mark. Until next month, on behalf of the entire VOE team, thanks for joining us. This is Camille Valva reminding you to keep it real. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.